thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate everyone uh, coming in after uh, their office hours, or maybe perhaps during your office hours now. Um, and we're all kind of learning new technologies, so uh, hopefully this will go very smoothly. I'm kind of the lead-off hitter. Uh, and I have a very short presentation, and then I'll let the all-star team do their work. Uh, this is uh, the faculty, Dr. McFerry, Dr. Parsons, Dr. Rareborn, and Dr. Tay. Uh, these are my disclosures. Uh, this is the uh, AUA BPH uh, panel members. It was chaired by Kelly Parsons, who's one of our speakers. Vice chair was uh, Kevin McFerry who will speak uh, right after me. Uh, really was a great team of urologists, uh, primary care physicians. Uh, we also had our methodologists, uh, very, very important. And also the AUA staff. So we wanna congratulate them as well in terms of helping us. Uh, this is gonna to be um, our lineup. Uh, my, uh, I'll give a very short intro. Kevin will do methodology. Uh, Kelly will then do some guideline statements, a minor comment about medical therapy, which is going to be in, in next year's guidelines. Um, Klaus will talk about minimally invasive therapies, Alex surgical therapies, and then Kelly will talk and close it with the future. If we have a couple minutes for questions, we will, uh, but we're kind of a little bit on a tight schedule, so we'll go from now. So why not? Why do these guidelines? And it's kind of nice because our guidelines have now become more uh, generated in terms of timing. It used to be every six or seven years, and now it's almost yearly, which is good. Ultimately, what we want to do is to bring uh, evidence-based surgical management, and next year will be medical management for men with low urinary tract symptoms, secondary to BPH. The ultimate goal is to maximize quality of life and to minimize adverse events and the patient burden. Uh, there have been numerous new technologies. You'll hear many of them uh, in the subsequent 90 minutes. Uh, we'll talk about a little bit about diagnosis updates, upstate updates on minimally invasive therapy, uh, medical therapy, as Kelly will talk a little bit more detail, will be deferred until next year. We're in the process of meeting about that, but there are really no new guidelines that are going to come out uh, now and part of this course. So how can we use clinical guidelines better? Uh, ultimately, and it's, it's a lot of work, and we want to really collate the most up-to-date information. Uh, this is peer review data. These they're not single case reports and try to do the best job we can to give you the best information that you can take back to your patients in terms of uh, treating them. We want to be kind of proactive and we believe, and I think the AUA, most medical organizations believe that when you use these guidelines, you'll deliver better outcomes. There are barriers, we know that. Awareness, getting, in, getting them out. Being on this course is very helpful with developing awareness, familiarity, and you may agree with uh, many of them, or you may not agree. So trying to get in consensus is very, very important. We need to overcome the inertia of experience and just your experience of normal practice. And change is difficult. And look what we've all done to try to adapt to the pandemic of uh, having this course instead of in person, we're doing it virtually. Um, and sometimes patients and clinicians' goals are not always in sync, or frankly, the guidelines as well. There are a lot of external barriers, uh, including equipment and space and education materials, time, staff, education, finance, we get all of that. But ultimately, we're trying to do the best job we can to help you do the best job that you can. So there's conflicting data, uh, whether or not this works. I'm just gonna show you some briefly, some information. Um, these came from uh, medical guidelines where 55 or 59 showed improvement. And yet in other studies, uh, these were 30 studies reviewed. 
Um, and six showed significant improvement, four showed modest improvement, three showed no effect. So it's hardly 100% consensus that these, these things actually are going to be helped. Um, these are some of the motivations and barriers, and this actually comes from data uh, of AUA guidelines. Um, and these were uh, female stress incontinence, asymptomatic microhematuria, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, vasectomy, surgical management of stones. A lot of, a lot of members, and you may have filled out some of these uh, surveys, of which 10% responded. The overall adherence was actually not bad. It was a, over, a little bit over 70%, 72.7. Microhematuria being the most commonly followed, post-vasectomy seam analysis being the, uh, the least common. Uh, so why don't people follow guidelines? Well, the most common reason is they just don't agree. And that's what we found in that that was published in the survey uh, earlier this year. Uh, for female stress incontinence, some of the barriers were believed that interventional uh, testing was warranted. Probably has a little bit to do with urodynamics and systemetrograms. For vasectomy, just a lot of patients, a lot of clinicians were just not aware of them. Uh, barriers include insurance coverage. We can recommend or not recommend, but sometimes this insurance said we're going to pay for it or not pay for it. Overt disagreement in 22% and others were 30%. So how to improve uh, adherence? And again, these were the conclusions of the authors um, by making them simple. And it's true, guidelines can get kind of almost biblical in terms of their depth. Uh, by shortening and simplifying, almost have little cliff notes, if you will, uh, or flow charts, I think that would help uh, because it would be easier to remember and easy to refer to. Maybe embedding guidelines in the EMR, and I think ultimately that's going to happen. Um, so, you know, in our institutions, we use EPIC, and it's, you know, it's unwielding as it is, and to put guidelines in there may make it more unwielding. And perhaps sending weekly emails reviewing guidelines. So repetition breeds familiarity. I think that's going to be important as well. And Telemedicine is going to be important as well. So given the fact that we do these things electronically, we may be able to develop homogeneity. And a course like this will help that, at least for the BPH guidelines. So the purpose of these guidelines is to provide a useful reference. Uh, in this case, it's minimally invasive and surgical-based surgical management of male LUTs. Uh, they were derived from evidence-based processes and multidisciplinary panel. And I think Kevin will go a little more detail to the methodology. And I think it's shared decision-making. We're going to talk about that uh, later on, but shared decision-making is important. Uh, it's, it's now an interaction, but nevertheless, as healthcare professionals, we're most uh, in position to hopefully develop the best information and provide that for our patients. So with that, I'm going to now uh, switch it over to Kevin. And again, thank you for everybody for attending. Hi, Kevin here. Um, well, I... Uh, I have my voice. Uh, suddenly, my uh, camera doesn't seem to be showing. Maybe that's a blessing. Um, yeah, sorry about that. So you saw my disclosures. Uh, I'll move on. Uh, nothing surprising. Uh, my role is to discuss uh, today, to discuss the um, methodology, how, how this whole process occurs, give a better understanding of what, um, what all this is about. And. Uh, um, Steve alluded uh, to the group effort, and this is a list of the people who have been on this group. Uh, there's a large contingent of urologists. Um, there's uh, patient representatives. There's this uh, Minnesota evidence-based uh, decision uh, group uh, center uh, headed by Tim Wilt, which uh, really helped some of the logistics 
compiling the data. And then, of course, the AUA staff who um, are untiring in their commitment to this project and really all the guideline projects. So this is the fifth iteration. Um, 1994 being the first one, kind of a landmark um, publication, so keep my copy. Um, and then was a big gap um, in, in time before a second one came. And then they started rolling off relatively fast. So that was actually 2004, not 2013, 2010, 2018, 2019. And we're working on a new one, um, which I'll talk about on this next slide. So why now? Why, why are we doing all this? Why do we do it so often? Well, um, there's a lot of development in our field. That's a great thing. A lot of innovation, a lot of new ideas coming in. Um, some of this is missed, which Klaus is going to talk about later today. But missed um, and other uh, interest in BPH is driving this constant need for updates. And um, it's becoming like a full-time job. Um, and of course, BPH is not just urologists. There's a lot of processes that go into this. Um, our field in many ways is naive or immature in that some of the exact ideologies were just not clear about. So reiteration, redoing it is, is, um, is certainly um, you know, here and it's what's happening. So our disease of note, Lux BPH is uh, progressive. It's an important diagnosis and we feel that uh, we're doing a good for mankind, good for health policy. Why, why just surgery? Why don't we just do the whole, the whole thing? Well, surgery was a huge undertaking, and medicine is proven to be likewise. And um, it, we felt we just couldn't do justice if we tried to do the entire uh, you know, two spheres of Lux BPH simultaneously. So we broke it into pieces, and I think that was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, so we will be updating the medical uh, guidelines in the next year or so, I think Kelly's going to mention that. I won't I'll belabor it. Um, that uh, release of the medicine will come, um, will come obviously not in 2016 and not in 2020, but perhaps later. Uh, Steve uh, already talked about utilization. I won't really belabor that at this point. I'm going to move through the slides. Um, so methodology. So in preparation of this, the Minnesota evidence team worked with all of us trying to understand what uh, type of questions, key questions we were interested in answering for us and you, um, and then also helping us focus the scope of inquiry, and then what types of patients, what types of uh, papers, what types of publications um, were we uh, actually going to look at. And we came up with we called 26 key questions, and they fall into these three categories, questions about retention, questions about preoperative uh, parameters that help surgery, and then the surgical management itself. So pretty broad categories, but 26 is a lot of questions, but that's what we felt um, was important. And you can see the key, some of the key questions here. I don't want to read them, but comparative efficacy and effic uh, effectiveness of preoperative evaluation, like pressure flow studies or urodynamics, um, and then the efficacy and effectiveness of various uh, surgical procedures, 
comparing this to a TERP or a sham. A critical criteria in our assessment is we, we don't want these single arm evaluations. We need to compare it to something we know. And so we thought a TERP, uh, bipolar or whatever would be an appropriate one or sham. And in the U.S., many of our clinical trials are compared to sham. In Europe, many of those have to have an active comparative end up being a PURP. And then we were interested in some of the drivers of less PCH, age, obesity, diabetes. What can these tell us about surgical management? And then, of course, um, we, we weren't interested in these three-month short studies. We want to be able to counsel our peers and counsel our patients with longer-term studies. And so we called six and 12 months long-term. And, you know, you can argue if that's long-term or not, but, um, you know, certainly better than the simple three-month trial to which many studies uh, were, were based on. So we searched OVID, Cochrane, uh, the, the list is, um, is extensive. And then um, looking for ra essentially randomized uh, controlled trials and other types of things. And uh, we did this for a long period of time, from 2007 to 2019. That's a lot of data. We put this uh, into the, uh, put those papers and tried to classify them into what types of key questions were they trying to address. And uh, you can see it's a funnel. You're taking this huge amount of information and trying to squeeze it through this tiny uh, opening at the end. Um, and then we had a, a whole criteria. We began to review these, excluding papers, then um, uh, based on whether English or in uh, another language where we weren't really going to be accessed. We had two reviewers. So you can see it's kind of a robust, intense activity. And what did we find? Well, we came up in that, you know, great, almost 20 year period, um, some 3,000, almost 500. Uh, 500 papers. Um, some were duplicate, we threw them out, then we started excluding uh, based on those criteria we talked about, gotta be human, gotta be English, um, uh, gotta have the uh, control groups, et cetera, and ended up just south of 400. And when we really got down to the studies that we could look at for our key question, it was 122. So that is a lot of systems. And several of our key questions, the preoperative evaluation, zero, zero papers address that. It's a great disappointment. Thought we may be able to push the field, um, but that's what happens. So there's a quantitative analysis. We create a narrative synthesis, summarizing these into tables. Uh, these are available to you in, in some form uh, through the AU website, by the way. Uh, began to stratify studies by comparator, length of follow-up, and then looking for things like bias, um, focusing, of course, the entire time on randomized controlled trials with active comparators. Um, and so you can see it was very rigorous. Basically, we're looking for men, papers uh, addressing men over 45 that don't have other causes of lower urinary tract symptoms like nocturnal polyuria uh, or you know, spinal cord injury. Um, and uh, that does help us focus more on our index population, kind of patients that you're seeing in your office. So what about recommendations? Well, um, they fall into strong, that's moderate, and conditional. And the strong recommendation, the thing which we think would be substantial, is not really well represented in surgical data. 
um, in BPH data. It's just not common that we get papers uh, or statements that we can um, that we can say are going to be a strong recommendation. It's not that we're wishy-washy. It's that the um, the evidence strength isn't strong enough to make that um, a valid recommendation. And so we're, we're being conservative, but also uh, being as accurate as we know how. Our moderate recommendations, we do see these, and this is about as good as any of our statements in the surgical uh, category get, again, based on the evidence strength. Um, you know, what benefits greater than risks and burdens, and a moderate certainty is kind of where the moderate recommendation comes from. And um, again, about as good as we can see in BPH surgery. And conditional recommendations, these are common. Again, uh, common because there's low certainty. There's, the evidence strength isn't as strong. And many times there's a, quite an equal balance between benefits and risk. So these end up being in the conditional. Um, now, there's two other categories that are mentioned of, of statements that are worth mentioning. And one is clinical principle. Um, these are commonly used, um, and, but not bad. I mean, I don't want to say that this is a bad statement or a weak statement. Um, you know, these are very reasonable things that, that most clinicians and neurologists are going to say, yeah, uh, uh, we might not have strict evidence, but we believe that this is a principle of our specialty. And you'll see a couple of these on the on call today. And then, of course, expert opinion. And this is when uh, we think, based on a consensus sitting around the room, that we think, yes, this, this particular statement is a reasonable one that helps, supports surgeons, supports patients, supports the data, um, as weak or strong as it may be. So, um, I'm supposed to say this is a warning that the statements represent the input of the entire panel, and we're not solely responsible for individually responsible for any of the statements that you can uh, that you're going to hear today. So don't be attacking us on the street should you bump into any of us. So I'm going to um, sign off. Thank you, and uh, hand this over to Kelly Parsons, who's our new chair of the BPH guidelines. Hi, good afternoon. It's Kelly Parsons. Greetings from Southern California. Kevin, thank you so much. And I'm delighted to be part of the, the course today. And I'm going to be I'm going to uh, be talking uh, a little bit more broadly about the guidelines, and there is going to be a little bit of overlap, but not much between some of the other comments that the panelists have made today. First, my disclosures, I am in fact the chair of the panel. If you wanna throw tomatoes, I suppose you can throw them at me. I can tell you that it's a singular honor. It's very humbling to be in a room full of folks who are much smarter than me. It's, it's like the greatest masterclass of all time uh, for BPH, and I can't, uh, emphasize enough the dedication of every single person who is involved with these guidelines, from the AUA staff uh, to our patient advocate uh, who's on the committee, and of course to the folks uh, whose names you've seen repeatedly uh, shown uh, today. Uh, I don't have any topic-related uh, uh, um, uh, conflicts uh, for today's presentation, and I wanted to keep things very broad. So I'm going to talk briefly uh, about each of these different domains, the purpose of the guidelines, a little bit more about the process, but a little bit more broadly, and then also structure, because I've found 
in, in chatting about guidelines of various uh, sorts at CME conferences and giving talks, uh, that a lot of folks, uh, as Steve alluded to at the beginning of the session, actually aren't aware of some of the guidelines. And so I did want to walk through a little bit about the, the online presentation of the guidelines and, and how to read them. This is just a reminder to myself uh, to keep things uh, broad, uh, to, to keep things 30,000 feet. In fact, this is more than 30,000 feet. This is a, a view of San Diego uh, from space. Uh, for those of you who've been to the AUA conventions when they're here in San Diego, uh, the pointer is about where the uh, convention center is in, in downtown San Diego. So first off, the, the purpose of the guidelines. And it's really meant, as we've talked about, to provide a useful reference. I can't underscore that enough, a reference, a framework for clinicians. It's evidence-based, as, as Kevin talked about, uh, the latest evidence, it is multidisciplinary, so we try to draw from all the different fields uh, that would touch on these particular topics. And this guideline, as with every AUA guideline, emphasizes shared decision-making with the individual patients. And as I tell the residents, that should be the, 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 pre, the, 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 the forwarding text to any discussion that we have uh, about any kind of treatment, that it's going to involve shared decision-making. At the end of the day, we're trying to provide practical, up-to-date recommendations. And I'm underlining recommendations because one of the things I did want to address are some of the community concerns that are expressed to me, you know, say when, when, when I do give talks or um, when we receive letters to the editor at the Journal of Urology. And one of the things I do hear uh, is concern from the membership and concern from the community uh, and our stakeholders that guidelines uh, will somehow stifle independent practice. And so another way of saying that is you're telling us what to do. You're telling us how to run our practice and how to um, treat patients. And in the extreme, I've even had folks say, well, uh, you know, you're, you're increasing our medical liability somehow. Um, and, and that's really not true. We're not trying to do that at all. Um, we're actually trying to build a framework uh, for folks uh, on which to work. Uh, and you'll see when you read the guidelines, we don't box anyone in. Uh, and in fact, we have very vigorous discussions uh, over the day and a half. Uh, that is when we used to be able to meet in person. Uh, we lock ourselves in a room for a day and a half in Linthicum, uh, and we wrestle every word of the text. Uh, we have hour-long discussions about whether a guideline should say may uh, or should um, include these particular tests. Uh, another concern I hear is lack of alignment with other societies. Uh, that is to say that our guidelines might say something different than, say, the EAU guidelines uh, or other evidence-based guidelines that might be out there. Uh, and in fact, um, that is sometimes the case. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we are members of the AUA. We serve the AUA membership. Uh, and we have a particular um, standard that we have to uphold. Um, we're stewards for the AUA, which means that we're stewards for the care of urological patients. Uh, and our consensus uh, recommendations might be different than those of other groups uh, that get together. Uh, and finally, something that we often uh, hear is there's a lack of alignment with FDA clearance uh, or approval. Uh, that is to say, the FDA might come out with an amended statement uh, uh, about uh, clearance uh, for a particular device, and then the AUA guidelines don't reflect perhaps that amended uh, statement. Uh, and that's because um, the FDA, uh, in fact, uh, is something that we don't necessarily look at uh, when we uh, talk about uh, the guideline statements, because the FDA uh, always, in it, or FDA in its clearance rather, doesn't always depend strictly uh, on very uh, exhaustive um, reviews uh, of uh, comparative efficacy uh, the way that we do. 
Um, an example uh, of uh, some of the discussions we've had with stakeholders in the community uh, is prostatic artery embolization. Uh, so there has been a bit of a back and forth uh, on that, and this is just a recent letter to the editor, um, uh, or, a, or a recent or a letter to the editor that was published in 2019. We've also had another letter to the editor that was just recently um, uh, sent with similar themes, uh, addressing some of the issues uh, that I'm talking about here, uh, primarily because for prostate artery embolization, as some of you may know, we still regard it as being within the realm of clinical trials uh, and, and not yet ready to be uh, fully um, out there, we think, as a standard of care, uh, necessarily outside the setting of clinical trials for lower urinary tract symptom treatment. So that is a bit of a back and forth uh, that we've had. So in summary, what I would say is that uh, the AUA guidelines, they provide a framework for best practices, but we don't dictate them. You know, they're out there. They're a great reference point, I think. Uh, it's important also to note, uh, especially I think the folks uh, who are affiliated with academic programs out there will recognize that. These um, are the fundamental principles on which we teach our residents now. Uh, all of the guidelines, whichever domain, whether it's stress incontinence or it's prostate cancer or it's BPH, uh, the residents, uh, our residents certainly, they learn from the guidelines. Uh, and that's because uh, the in-service examinations are drawn from the guidelines. The um, lifelong learning, the boards, uh, they're all drawn in some way from the, the, the substance of the guidelines. Uh, the AUA's core mission is unique. Um, it's going to differ from other societies. And so an example here would be SIR, Society for Interventional Radiology, um, which has put out a statement saying they endorse uh, uh, prostate artery embolization. Um, but the SIR focused only on uh, prostate artery embolization, whereas we focused on 12 different surgical guidelines. And we had to consider PAE uh, within the context of the 11 other uh, surgical and minimally invasive therapies that we were considering. Uh, and then finally, just a note, uh, FDA clearance does not necessarily uh, um, uh, denote proof of comparative efficacy uh, for, uh, for some of the devices uh, that will be discussed uh, today. What about a little bit more about the process, just in the, in the, in the broadest uh, terms, because I know Kevin has already done a great job um, with the uh, nuts and bolts of them. Uh, the timeline, as Kevin alluded to, uh, was that the surgical guidelines, and, and we are discussing surgical guidelines for the reasons that Kevin um, uh, mentioned, uh, just to take it in different bites, surgery first, then medications. Uh, they originally came out in 2018, and I think um, we've had a great pattern develop over the last couple of years, uh, which was different than uh, previous years. Uh, in that we have been able to update, update the guidelines uh, with amendments each year, each of the last two years. Uh, and so we did our original search through September uh, of uh, 2017. Uh, the original guidelines were published in um, spring of 2018. Uh, then the following year, uh, we extended that to September of 2018. And then we published the amendments in spring of 2019. And the most recent ones go through late 2019. Uh, and those just uh, were published in uh, Journal of Urology, or if they're not out yet, they're about to be, uh, which are uh, amendments, uh, updated um, uh, evidence uh, from the uh, previous uh, year. Kevin also uh, alluded to this, and this is the nomenclature uh, about the, the different recommendations that we have. All of the guidelines uh, will, will contain this table. Uh, in some way, shape, or form when you go to the website, uh, and I invite you to study them uh, when you have a moment. Some of the, the points that I wanted to make, which Kevin did, 
uh, was that the recommendations, uh, they have an increasing level of strength, you know, from this side of the arrow all the way to the pointy side of the arrow. And the recommendations themselves can be conditional, moderate, or strong, depending on the level of evidence uh, that accompanies them and depending upon the committee's uh, consensus uh, on them. And you'll notice that they're each spelled out in each of the uh, different guidelines. Uh, and then as also, as Kevin alluded to, there are these two uh, other points, expert opinion uh, and uh, clinical principle. And uh, as Kevin alluded to, it, it, it's one of those things, th these two points, uh, they're just kinds of things where you're not going to study them in the context of a randomized trial. They just make good clinical sense uh, in the opinion of the committee uh, that most urologists would agree uh, that these are reasonable kinds of things to do. So a clinical principle, for example, is the statement about a component of clinical care that is widely agreed upon by urologists or other clinicians, uh, but there may not be evidence in the medical literature specifically about it. Um, and then expert opinion is a statement uh, that is based on members' clinical training, experience, knowledge, and judgment for which there is no evidence at all. Uh, and you'll see as you page through them, when you read these, they, they make sense. They're things of like uh, post-void residual, prostate volume size, uh, taking a history, doing a DRE. You know, these are the kinds of things uh, that there aren't randomized clinical trials about, uh, but which just make good clinical sense. Uh, and then finally, a little bit about structure. And what I wanted to just talk about here, and I'm sorry if, if I'm preaching a little bit to the choir, um, but I've actually found this to be quite useful, uh, particularly for folks uh, who aren't necessarily all that aware uh, of the guidelines. Uh, they are on the auanet.org site. Um, you just uh, plug in that, um, that website address that I have at the top that has the, the red circle in it. Uh, I circled BPH here and you can see uh, that it's got 2018 amended, 2019 and 2020. So uh, the amendments uh, are, uh, should be up online. Uh, and then there's the microhematuria guideline, which just came out, advanced prostate cancer, uh, these other guidelines. And then if you scroll down that page, it's got all the other guidelines for all the other domains in urology, easy to search on, uh, easy to find all of them. When you go to our guidelines, the surgical BPH guidelines, this is the algorithm. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Again, this is something that we really wrestle with to get just right to increase uh, the, the, the functionality of them. And what I like about these, and I think our, our residents like them, our residents like them rather too, uh, is that really uh, for surgical therapy, one of the key things that we recommend is assessment of prostate size, whatever uh, imaging you think is appropriate. Um, MRI, CT, ultrasound, um, again, not dictating what you should do, suggesting that you get a prostate volume and you can get prostate volume any way that you see fit as a clinician. Uh, and it breaks it down, large prostate, average prostate, small prostate. Again, not dictating what is a large prostate. Well, it's gonna be in the eye of the beholder and you can read a little bit in the text uh, about what some of our opinions are about that. Uh, but we're not gonna tell you that the strict definition of a large prostate is 100 cubic centimeters or larger, um, th that's, that's you know, not what we're trying to do. We're trying to provide uh, general uh, kinds of recommendations and you just follow the algorithm down to the various other therapies or the various therapies rather uh, that will be discussed uh, over the course of the rest of the afternoon. If you go to specific guideline statements, you just, you, you'll see as you scroll down, you page down uh, through the um, uh, through the website, uh, you'll go to each of the guideline statements here. I just have guideline statement one, 
It's a clinical principle along the lines of what I discussed earlier. It's a lot of the things um, that I'm sure you all do in your practices already. Uh, and then if you're interested, uh, or rather I should say, um, one sentence, that's it, succinct statement. All the information that you need is right there. Uh, if you'd like to find out more, you just go over with your mouse, you click on discussion, and it's gonna pull up, it's gonna pull up, it is going to pull up, I know I'm building the suspense here, what is it going to pull up? It's gonna pull up the discussion. And that's when you can start to get in the weeds a little bit, you can check the references, uh, whatever your level of interest is in that particular topic. And just a, a brief statement on, uh, on, on medical therapy, as, as has been alluded to. Uh, medical therapy, uh, we have done the initial searches, we've done the initial writing. Um, we were to have met in person this fall uh, to, to come out with the document, hammer it out completely. Uh, we'll be meeting virtually this fall to do the same thing. Uh, and our current uh, uh, timeline places us as having the medical uh, recommendations ready for time, uh, prime time rather, uh, next fall, uh, or excuse me, next spring. Um, and in some combination at that point with the surgical therapy. And at this point, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Dr. Rareborn uh, at UT uh, Southwestern. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I will uh, launch the moment I get control over my slides in discussing the minimally invasive treatment options that you saw flashing on this algorithm on the screen. Um, Amongst the minimally invasive treatments, we have some that are basically heat-based. This is the old style tuna treatment, which is no longer recommended. The microwave treatment, uh, which is still an option, and I'll discuss it briefly. And the newer one, the water vapor thermal therapy, I highlight those in green. And there are mechanical treatments, the Neotrac or Teleflex Eurolift, which is currently approved and recommended. And in blue, there are some that are not development currently, and I only mention them because they are similar. They are mechanical trying to dilate or open up the prosthetic urethra. There's one that is unique, uh, and uh, um, uh, Alex Tay is going to discuss that one. It's the aquablation made by Prosep Biorobotics. Really, it is a more surgery than a minimally invasive treatment, really requires anesthesia and OR and the whole setup. Up on top, there is one that is an interventional radiology approach. Few urologists would do it, the prostate arterial embolization. You can see it's also in red marked, and red in this case means it's neither recommended nor not recommended. It's basically, we state in the guidelines I shared with you that we think it should be used in the context of the clinical trials because the guideline committee uh, feels that the data are not solid enough. This is the beginning of the surgical guidelines algorithm. It starts with the evaluation and preoperative testing. And you can see that uh, it recommends obviously the assessment of LUTs in terms of symptom severity and frequency using the standard assessment tools such as a symptom score, father score, quality of life score, examination, and then uh, flow rate and PBR measurement. One thing I want to point out, and we uh, put this in in 2018, it was kept in the updates in 2019 and 20 in the amendments, the assessment of prostate size and shape. This is kind of new when you read the uh, 1994 and earlier guidelines, prostate size assessment was actually neglected. It was almost like it does not matter. And in fact, I can still hear John McConnell saying uh, prostate size does not really matter. Well, we think it matters now because some treatments are size dependent, uh, some are very significantly size dependent, and in some 
attacking, attacking it too large of a prostate can be construed as being outside the guidelines, i.e. being actually a bad uh, idea for the patient's sake. So clinicians should consider assessment of prostate size and shape by abdominal or transrectal ultrasound cystoscopy, or if you have it, cross-sectional imaging, and many of us have now cross-sectional imaging, either by CT scanning or MRI for elevated PSA, that give us a good idea of the size and the shape of the prostate. The other uh, guideline statements regarding flow rate and PBR are really sort of standard, and they have been around for a long, long time. Now, uh, this was shown by uh, Carol Carson a moment, about, uh, a moment ago, and what you'll see here is basically that for the first time, we differentiate small, average, and large-sized prostate and make recommendations based on the size of the prostate. So it behooves us to really adhere to this guideline in assessing the size and the shape of the prostate. Some of the treatments, we think, are actually not size-dependent, but many are size-dependent. So this is a cartoon. The scale along the x-axis may very well not be correct, and some of you may totally disagree with the scale, but it's pretty evident that an open or simple prostatectomy or robotic simple is reserved for the large glands, you know, 100 plus. Uh, a TUIP is clearly for the smaller glands, and most of us tackle a 30 plus to 80 or 100 gram prostate with a KTP or a TURP. Clearly, the whole lab is very flexible, uh, some uh, physicians can do a whole lab with very small prostate. Certainly, they can go up to 200, 300 grams. And if you use bipolar technology, you can expand the TURP as well to 100 grams, no doubt. The Eurolift and Resume, you see on top, they're by FDA criteria and by approval actually limited to certain sizes. And I'll go a little bit into detail about that. The um, a surgery is recommended as a guideline statement six for patients with renal insufficiency, secondary BPH, refractory retention, recurrent infections, recurrent bladder stones, and those who have symptoms not appropriately treated with medications or simply they don't want to try medications. And we have to remember that it's not a must go through medication through surgery or misintervention. Miss it can bypass medication if patients don't choose to do that. One uh, little uh, cut out or caveat here, a, the presence of a bladder diverticulum is not a, is not a uh, immediate indication for surgery. Many of them can be completely left alone. If the patient has bladder obstruction due to the prostate, it can be done at the same time. Honestly, myself, I'll leave these diverticula for the most part alone. There's a lot of trouble when tackling these diverticula. So I want to show a few slides on the arterial embolization. Again, this is recommended only in the context of a clinical trial. You're well familiar with it. Probably wherever you practice, there's some radiologists doing it. And there is a lot of data that has been amassed. It comes from certain institutions. There's one good meta-analysis from 2018. I suppose there are several, but this is a good one. And it demonstrates here on the right-hand side that in terms of symptom score, when you compare it to a TURP, the TURP is superior on the right-hand side. When you're looking at um, other parameters, such as the flow rate, the TURP comparator arm is superior. It's on the right-hand side of that neutral line there that you can see. When you're looking at prostate volume uh, and PSA changes, the TURP is uh, superior compared to standard surgical treatment. And so what is really uh, beneficial, presumably, is it's a minimally invasive treatment the one of the persons who really champions this particular intervention, Dr. Pisco uh, from uh, Portugal, I believe he is, 
Uh, he recently did a randomized trial published in March of 2020 in European Neurology, and he randomized patients in a single-blind sham control trial. It's almost hard to believe that people are willing to be actually anesthetized, be put on the table, then there is a randomization, and the patients who are actually randomized to sham, they have the catheter in the prostate artery, then the catheter is removed without injection of particle. This is taking a sham treatment to an extreme. Uh, this particular paper was uh, looked at by many people with almost uh, with astonishment bordering on disbelief because all the criteria, whether it's symptom score or quality of life score or flow rate, came out fairly similar and they came out in an amazing manner as shown here for the symptom score. So you can see that the embolization arm had an immediate improvement. It was maintained to 12 months. The sham arm had a little bit of an improvement. And then after sham was converted to active treatment, it paralleled the embolization arm. And when I say parallel, I mean parallel. Just look at the dots. They're just totally superimposable. And if you think this is a coincidence for the symptom score, then I have to tell you it's not because it's the same is true for the quality of life score shown here and for the, so for the symptom bother score. So each one of them behaved exactly the same. So many of us who've done clinical trial work there, they marvel at this because we have never been able to have a trial be so perfect in terms of sham, sham costs over to active treatment. Be it as it may, this came out in March. Uh, currently, the opinion of the guideline panel is that this particular treatment is actually recommended only in the context of a clinical trial and not for clinical practice as much. Regarding TUMT, the old-style microwave thermotherapy, it is still recommended or can be offered for patients with LUTs with a conditional recommendation, with a lower recommendation, and an evidence level of grade C. And this means that the uh, evidence regarding efficacy symptom improvement is not consistent. There have been four trials comparing microwave to TURP or a control. And I'll show you some data that demonstrate that concerns to the guideline panel was a high reoperation rate, 9.9% compared to TURP, depending on the length of follow-up. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot that can be said about reoperation and retreatment rates. I'll say a few things later on, but this is a hotly debated issue and a fairly muddy playing field as such. Incontinence is lower than a TURP, but even the TUMT seems to induce some rate of erectile dysfunction, although we today don't really believe a TURP induces erectile dysfunction. We think ejaculatory dysfunction is more common, though these older series represent that. You're familiar with the differentiation between hyperthermia. There was a bunch of machines that created these low temperatures with a thermotherapy, which is a higher temperature. We're really talking about the thermotherapy, and we're really talking about those machines that induce the heating of the prostate with a cooling balloon to protect the urethral lining. That was the standard uh, uh, amongst those machines. When you'll do that, you'll induce a necrosis. This is shown here with an MRI before on the left-hand side and after treatment, demonstrating that you induce this necrotic zone inside the prostate. And here are two examples of sham controlled trials. One is done with a device that's no longer available, the Dornier Eurovive device, TUMT versus sham. You can see that active treatment in yellow versus the sham treatment in orange uh, improved uh, the symptom score substantially above the sham treatment. And here is another one, the Targus machine, that I believe is still around and is still uh, to some degree supported catheters, treatment catheters can still be purchased. And again, a comparison to sham 
the orange versus the blue in CHAM, and you can see a greater symptom improvement. There is, as in many of these areas, meta-analyses that demonstrate that as well. There is also data on, uh, on uh, uh, prostate volume from Switzerland in this case, and it shows on the right-hand side a volume reduction due to the induction of necrosis. And even urodynamic studies have been done, and you can see here that from six to 24 months, as uh, Dr. Talman shows here, that there is a reduction in the PDT at Qmax that is statistically significant. So even unobstruction has been demonstrated for these microwave devices. So the systematic review shows here these studies that have been done with a fairly sizable symptom score improvement and in some cases matching or coming close to the TURP in regards to the flow rate, which is the lower part of this tab table here, not quite as dramatic. So the uh, uh, meta-analysis concludes that TURP produces greater improvement in symptoms and flow rate, fewer retreatments, and recommends further research. Well, <clears throat> I doubt there will be further research in this arena, but in any case, the uh, um, uh, AUA guidelines recommend, <clears throat> recommend this particular treatment as an uh, option for these patients that I stated before. So this leaves us with the two main players in the space, <clears throat> and the ma main players is the prostatic urethral lift, recommended as an option for patients with prostate sizes under 80 grams, and no middle lobe. Some of you may <clears throat> be aware that there has been a trial with the middle lobe and the FDA has approved prostates up to 100 grams, but these data are insufficient for the guideline committee to recommend it as an option at this point. I make a comment about this later. Uh, there is a, uh, another guideline statement and it says it is particularly interesting and intriguing to patients who desire preservation of ejaculatory and erectile function. A similar statement is made for Rhizome, the water vapor thermal therapy offered for patients with LUTs with BPH, provided the prostate is under 80 grams, very similar. Please note, water vapor thermal therapy is actually tested and approved for middle lobe patients in a shame control trial, so that exclusion is not present here. And it also is offered to eligible patients, particularly those who have ejaculatory and erectile function concerns and wanna maintain that. You can see that the evidence grade is a C, throughout, and it's a moderate recommendation. The erectile function is a conditional recommendation, but nonetheless, most practitioners choose those treatments, particularly for those patients, and I would say rightfully so. The uh, Rhizome system, I apologize for having gone too far, is around for a while. It looks similar to the TUNA system. There's a treatment box. Uh, the key here is that sterile water is uh, heated by radio frequency, and it is heated to the point of becoming vapor. The vapor is then injected into the prostate in small increments of 0.4 milliliter. And when the vapor hits the prostate, I don't know that the cartoon will play, when the vapor hits the prostate, it gives off that excess energy that is put into it during this phase conversion. The vapor converts back to water, but there's a lot of energy given off into the tissue. So the 103 centigrade water vapor is convectively delivered into the prostate, the prostate is body temperature, the temperature in, increase, decreases and the vapor converts back to water. And so this energy is immediately delivered to the cells and the cells actually denature and necrose. And again, there's good examples uh, from the folks at the Mayo Clinic demonstrating on the left-hand side that there are areas necrosis induced, the black areas in the prostate. And after three months, the prostate 
visually has shrunk and these areas of necrosis are reabsorbed and the prostate is collapsed. They quantified this and as you can see here, there is a substantial volume reduction. The prostate volume decrease at six months is about 30% right lower corner of this particular graph. The actual lesion shrinks even more. That's the area where the vapor predominantly went in. So there is a randomized trial that was done, sham control, three months for the sham, then they were converted to active treatment. A very typical BPH setup, prostate size 45 grams or so, symptom score 22 points, and the peak urinary flow rate was around 10 ml per second, well-matched cohorts. There have been uh, four-year data uh, published, and the five-year data were at the virtual AUA meeting presented by Kevin in a poster. I'll show them briefly. I show this slide here to show the stepwise improvement in the symptom score, not quite as dramatic at two weeks and one month. It's well known in the first week or so, patients often have still a catheter. So the symptom improvement takes time. The heat-induced shrinkage is not an immediate effect. Similar the flow rate, it takes a little time. Even the one month hasn't reached the full potential. Then it reaches up to 16 ml per second. And at the end of three years, it was 3 ml per second uh, for this particular treatment. I show the three-year data because they have been worked out quite well. They show the quality of life score on the left side and in the middle, the IIEF score. Uh, in the reformatting for this uh, meeting here, uh, that graph moved a little bit to the left. I apologize. The IIEF score is shown here. And the demonstration here is that the IIF score is perfectly well preserved. The four-year data have been uh, published in 2019. Uh, this is a slide that shows the pivotal data all in one slide, the symptom score, the quality of life score, the barber score. And you can see the BPH impact index all decrease similarly. And the dotted line uh, demonstrates the uh, sham control group, uh, the crossover data of the sham control group matching the active treatment quite well. Um, this is uh, from the uh, virtual AUA uh, in the supplement of the Journal of Urology, and you can see that the data were sustained in terms of symptom score and flow rate. Retreatment rates were pleasantly low, 4.4% surgical, 11% uh, of the treatment arm had medication, so that's still a very low rate. So good data out of five years. This trial officially stops at five years. The AUA, uh, the FDA, I apologize, required actually five-year data, and those were the five-year data. Side effects uh, occur early. Uh, they're not really happening much after two or three months, as you might expect. Uh, there's very little in the way of scar tissue formation that I can detect. So uh, in the first three months, you have dysuria, hemospermia, some frequency and urgency right after the catheter comes out. And some UTIs, um, they have more often than not occurred in patients uh, who had a spanner as a temporary insertion. Uh, if you put a catheter in for three to five to seven days or so, it doesn't happen quite as often. Ejaculatory dysfunction is rare, so erectile dysfunction is uncommon if ever noted, but ejaculatory dysfunction is rare, certainly compared to ablative procedures like a TURP or a KTP. The middle lobe treatment was part of the sham, and it induced actually a greater improvement when the middle lobe was treated. Uh, the vapor into the middle lobe induces a dramatic improvement. And if you don't treat the middle lobe, you actually miss out on that. And the middle lobe treated patients uh, shown here actually uh, in blue have a better improvement in symptoms on the left and in fluid on the right. So if patients have a middle lobe, the resume treatment is uh, suitable and it leads to a fairly good symptom improvement, better, if you, better even if you treat it than if you leave it alone. 
the pivotal, the first in man, the pilot, and the crossover trial, all these trials have a similar trajectory in terms of symptom improvement. That's reassuring to say the least. The second treatment I discussed today is the YOLIF treatment, also around for a number of years, a mechanical device, very different from the heat-based treatment. Um, and you can see that device has not changed very much. The company is working on a new model with a better cartridge system, which has four clips in it, so you don't have to go in and out with a new cartridge each time. In the insert, you see that there is a nitinol capsular tip, the PET suture in the middle, and the stainless steel anchor, the urethral end piece. You're well familiar with how the device is implanted. The technique is important. You want to aim at 2 and 10 o'clock at the interior chamber of the urethra. You want to angle the cystoscope 20, 25 degrees to the long axis of the prostate and the body of the patient to get that device nicely in a right angle away from the urethra. And in an idealized cartoon shape here, you get the opening of the anterior chamber. And here you get a wonderful comparison before and after. Admittedly, it doesn't look always that way in my patients, but that's a very nice example of an opening of the anterior chamber by placing these clips. The mechanism here is very different. In the short term, it's a mechanical opening by pulling it open like a theater curtain, if you will. In the long term, we're not sure. There could be ischemia interfering with uh, uh, future prostate growth by focal atrophy around this and by lack of blood supply, but there is no long-term PSA and prostate volume data. Long-term volume and PSA data is uh, quite, quite uh, uh, a miss in all the mistreatments, I would say, and would be a good idea to collect that, but we don't have that quite yet. The um, uh, LIFT study was also a five-year study, the same setup as the Resume sham trial, and it showed relatively similar data, I would say, not superimposable, but very similar in terms of symptom score, maintenance out to five years, quality of life score improvement, maintenance out to five years, BPH impact index, and flow rate improvement also between three and four ml per second out to five years from baseline. So not too dissimilar. The lift treatment uh, prides itself to maintaining an excellent chin score, which is completely correct. You'll see this here. And ejaculatory function and barber score are very well maintained. So there really is no issue in this treatment for younger men seeking preservation of ejaculate treatment naturally flock to the lift treatment or the resume treatment hence the AUA guideline statements I shared with you a moment ago. The lift treatment was compared to the TURP in a direct randomized comparison. The AUA guidelines seek randomized quadrupole trials. So a comment was made that the lift treatment is inferior to the symptom improvement in direct comparison. And that's true. It's shown here in this paper by Grotzke from 2017. In the same study compared to TURP, it showed also a benefit of the lift, namely a quicker recovery and return to work that's shown in blue compared to the TURP in red, and uh, equally good maintaining erectile function while being superior in maintaining ejaculatory function. It's, of course, obvious that a TURP normally executed, not trying to preserve ejaculation, loses on the MSHQ function and barber score against the lift or the resume treatment, et cetera. Couple of side notes on the lift that are of importance to practitioners. There is an issue with the clips and MRI, three Tesla MRI for PSA elevation and prostate cancer screening. So there is an artifact on the ADC. You see this here in the middle, but there is a protocol that can be enabled on the Siemens MRI scanners and eliminates the artifact. So it's possible 
to do a high-quality multi-parametric MRI, but it requires a little bit of an adjustment, I would say. Both these images show that here. Here's a wonderful example of a dark area, not very visible because of the clip in the conventional ADC, but if it's the adjusted protocol and the radiologist should be able to do this, then you have the normal resolution. And in this case, there was actually a, a Gleason 4 plus 4 cancer right there anteriorly that was hidden here in the dark spot. So it's an important comment to make. I mentioned that the uh, retreatment rate is a bit of a morass. And at three years, uh, I did this one time for the AUA presentation. I asked for retreatment data. And there was all kinds of commas, right? Some people had cancer, had a prostatectomy. Some had an additional lift treatment or an additional rhizome treatment. Some went on to TURP or PVP. Many went on to medical treatment. So you can see there's a smattering of retreatments. Retreatments uh, based on dissatisfaction, retreatments based on uh, physicians' beliefs or physicians' suggestion. There's a lot of that that is not completely cleared out. Uh, Kevin McVeary and Steve Kaplan recently wrote an opinion paper in the Journal of Urology and correctly pointed out that there's more data needed. An evidence-based classification system should be developed. And quite frankly, all manufacturers, all industry should be encouraged to use a systematic and uh, consistent way of collecting data on retreatment, not only starting an anticholinergic, but when is it stopped, for example, you know, after a treatment? Or when do you go back on an alpha blocker and do you stay on it and for how long? So what is a retreatment with the same treatment, whether it's resume or lift, how is it counted? How is it counted if a device is removed? You know, in some of these devices, removal is part of the equation. Uh, that's, for example, the ITIN device. So it's a very um, muddy playing field and uh, a call to action is really sorely needed. And hopefully the guideline committee will put its weight behind this effort. This is a patient who should not be treated with a lift device, according to the AUA. It's a clearly a ball valving middle lobe, quite beautifully displayed. The uh, Teleflex company did a trial called the MetLift trial, showed it can be treated successfully, but the AUA feels the evidence is not strong enough. The FDA in January of this year allowed the lift device to be used for prostates up to 100 grams. However, the evidence comes from a retrospective uh, registry, if you will, a European registry. So the data were not strong enough. So currently it is not recommended by AUA guidelines. And I feel in the spirit of fairness, there's something to be said about staying with the randomized controlled trials and being fair and even-handed. So the FD FDA may approve it, the AUA guidelines doesn't recommend it. And honestly, for some of these larger prostates, there are other treatments that may be more appropriate for certain patients. Some patients come to me, in fact, one came today and wanted a lift procedure and I said no because his prostate was 125 grams and I didn't think that was a candidate at all. So again, I reiterate statements 15 and 16 for the Eurolift. I showed it before. Um, Kevin uh, Keller pointed out that in the discussion section, there's a beautiful text that you can find why these statements are made. This is a discussion section for the resume treatment. It's the same thing. Uh, statements 18 and 19 are made for the resume treatment. And if you click on it in the guidelines online, you get the discussion with references, with explanations, and with some detail uh, wording in addition to it. So um, I'll come to the uh, end of my presentation. And for some reason, my mouse doesn't work. Just want to revisit this issue that amongst the mechanical devices, there is a litany of company working on 
randomized controlled trials. They are at the FDA, going to the FDA, wanting to go to the FDA. There are different phases of development. They all will have to clear the same hurdles. They all will have to do the same sham controlled trials or even TERP controlled trials. And they have to deal with all the issues that these companies have dealt with uh, so far. And it's going to be years until these trials are done, uh, published, and ready for the guideline committee to review. This is a algorithm. I highlight in red and in yellow where these minimally invasive treatments come into play for small glands and for average glands. None of them are recommended for the larger glands by the guidelines, but both lift and water vapor thermal therapy for the average size, same for the microwave treatment, the TUMT treatment. So this is my contribution. Appreciate the opportunity. I hope I leave enough time um, for Alex to discuss now the debulking treatments and the newest kid on the block, if you will, the aquablation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Klaus. Um, we'll just go on. Um, you know, I, as a member, as a, a peer reviewer for the uh, AUA guidelines, I got to throw darts at it. So that was my perspective. And instead of having the, the, uh, the 10,000 foot view, I kind of sit at the bench side. Um, but these guidelines really open your eyes and make you think about it because there's a lot of data to review. But one thing that's pretty pretty common and pretty accepted is that these options that we have for debulking really reflect a clinical principle that's been around for over almost a uh, 100 years, almost a century, that we're really treating BPH by reducing bladder outlet obstruction and debulking obstructive tissue is the main goal. Clearly, efficacy is dependent on the surgeon's skill, and often, the more removed, the better long-term efficacy. So the primary difference in a lot of these debulking options has been ease of use and safety to get there. With that caveat, here are the guidelines. Uh, these are my disclosures. Uh, as an investigator and most of these uh, therapies as in a consultant right now for that one. But for today, what we're going to do is focus on uh, on the uh, on three different areas. Um, you know, for what I would say is that the options to remove generally fall into three categories, electrosurgery, uh, technologies, lasers and major surgery, and a newcomer aqua ablation. <clears throat> uh, you know, I, TERP has been around for almost uh, a century, and, uh, TERP and, and, you know, it has evolved and it's become safer, and it's still popular and is, uh, because it really does work. It does, it, it does help you get better all around. So it is still the gold standards to reduce uh, urinary symptoms. Approaches to TERP, uh, clinicians still uh, may use a monopolar or a bipolar approach. And, uh, you know, basically there have been no differences in efficacy. It's safer with the bipolar, obviously, because it reduces the TUR syndrome uh, with uh, equal catheterization time, length of stay. However, it does still breathe, but it does remove um, dilutional hyponatremia. When it comes to TUR, we often know that size is safety is size as the key thing to size, and it's also time dependent. So that in general, we want to take a, a, a process less than 60 gram or 45 section resection limit in order to limit bleeding and uh, TUR syndrome if you're doing uh, monopolar. Clinicians, uh, however, still go back to the uh, a large gland to, to do an open surgery or its variations um, because interestingly enough, these are all uh, more uh, procedures that allow you to do larger, larger prostates. And interestingly enough, in large data sets, uh, the mortality rate of these open procedures in today's data set is actually lower than the TERP, probably mostly due to patient selection. So there's no really difference in transfusion needs when you look at all the different variations uh, as a point of, of, of view. 
One thing that we should always look at is also transurethral incision of the prostate. Although the grade level is B, it is still a very good procedure to treat small prostates less than 30. And there is a lower rate of retrograde ejaculation with TUIP. Uh, and so uh, while not used commonly, it is a very easy option that is that can be used uh, in lieu of the minimally invasive therapies. Although like all these other therapies, they do require anesthesia to a reasonable degree. And that's why it falls into the surgery category of debulking. Transurethral vaporization of the prostate um, was introduced in the mid 1990s. And uh, Steve and I were up there in the beginning of it. It's clearly the grandfather of vaporization techniques leading to lasers. While left less efficient in removing tissue, because of the resulting coagulation necrosis, um, and it's uh, less, it definitely bleeds less than, uh, than the standard TORP. That being said, uh, what I'd like to do is focus on electrosurgery just uh, as a point of uh, view uh, with the guidelines. These are the common uh, electrosurgery uh, prostatectomies. You have thermotherapies, traditional term, monopolar versus bipolar. But we'll focus on the bipolar because that is the, the TERP that is uh, being commonly used today. It's the most popular one and uh, being sold by different companies. It is based on the concept of really, uh, when we do electrosurgery for transurethral resection, we really look at you combining two surgical effects. One surgical effect is really vaporization, which is utilized in cutting and removing tissue. And the other effect is desiccation, utilizing coagulation. And main goal is to decrease morbidity of TERP while maintaining the efficacy of TERP. So when we ever we do electrovaporization, it's really a, a, a procedure to decrease bleeding by sealing off the vessels while still being able to bulk tissues uh, uh, in an efficient manner. When we do bipolar therapy, the main goal actually that has become the advantage of doing a regular TERP is that saline is utilized. And when saline is utilized, you remove the risk of TUR syndrome, allowing ones to resect longer and safer. And uh, the electrosurgical current is localized to the area of, tar of removal and doesn't go through the body, so a grounding pad isn't needed. One of the things that's nice about, um, uh, one of the things that's nice about uh, a bipolar therapy is that because it utilizes the TUR techniques, it's easy to learn. Uh, while reducing the, uh, the risk of dilutional nitrinatremia. There are, uh, and it, you know, basically use TERP techniques. Today's uh, loop variations are many. One concept that one can think of in all these loops is that when you have a thin loop, you have a higher energy density that uh, allows you to use higher heat, and therefore it's very good at cutting uh, tissue, especially for uh, cutting vascular prostate uh, tissue, as well as uh, uh, in not vascular prostate tissue. And then when you want to use um, a uh, vaporization technique, the larger, wider surface allow you to seal the bleeders. With a thinner loop, you actually, it's very good for uh, TURBT because it's much more effective at cutting those tissues out. When we look at the larger technology for vaporization, uh, a lot of the vaporization technology uses a large surface area in contact, which allows you to seal vessels using this desiccation technique. But in order to vaporize, you really need a special generator uh, to do vaporization because you need the high power current density in order to attain temperature to be able to uh, generate the heat and remove the tissue. And the point of contact is the heat generation for vaporization. So it is a contact procedure. When you look at the various uh, studies and uh, randomized trial, uh, you know there isn't really a huge difference between monopolar and bipolar in terms of efficacy. Uh, the catheterization times and hospitalization times are generally the same. 
but the operative times are actually longer with bipolar, mainly because the loop is sm clearly smaller. But the advantages are you have decreased TOR syndromes, and the disadvantages thus you need newer equipment. However, I would say that uh, cost issue is becoming less as more and more of these things are sold in, in larger numbers. So, however, it is clear that you do bleed less vaporization techniques. Uh, however, TERP is still the most popular internationally, but when more is done, there's clearly a mortality rate, though it is very low. Let's go on to uh, lasers. And the first laser I'd like to talk about is photoselective vaporization of the prostate. Um, green light, or green light as is best known, is the most popular laser platform for prostatectomy and is a vaporization technique that is safer and has been around now for over 15 years. Still popular with durable efficacy enough to come to be close enough to a TERP and clearly bleeds less. Its popularity as a laser procedure has expanded the overall acceptance of all other technologies in BPH and, uh, and the current technology is a 180 laser pop, uh, platform. And I would say greater, the large portion of, of laser procedures for prostatectomy done in the, at least in the United States, even around the world is uh, basically green light. That being said, um, home, and so, you know, when we look at the uh, AUA review uh, guidelines, uh, it just confirms the clinical efficacy and decreased transfusions compared to TERP because of the green light technology. That being said, in nucleation, laser nucleation, uh, and its sister valiant thelium are here to stay and attain simple prostatectomy durability with safer outcomes. However, it is a surgical enucleation technique and the laser makes it bleed less. Of note, um, anticoagulation, uh, our, our pop current population of patients is they are much more older, have a lot of anticoagulation or hematologic challenges, but multiple studies have shown that all laser technologies have superior hemostatic uh, qualities and are safer, and the guideline review supports this. However, technique and laser selection dictates different levels of safety, and lasers are clearly here to stay and comprise the bulk of today's prostatectomy, especially in the high-risk elderly and anticoagulated patients. That being said, let us review lasers that we have today. However, there's no more changes that we need to do to support this evidence of being safe for anticoagulated patients. The three most common procedures today in lasers, uh, technologies that are being used for lasers are the 532 or green light technology, the thulium laser, and the homium laser. <clears throat> And what we know about the homium laser among these, uh, when, the, when the most important thing that you can take home about these different laser procedures is that laser mechanism of action and technique utilized are dependent on the wavelength characteristic to achieve its electrosurgical effect. And it's important for the surgeon to understand those differences, but basically green light main chromophore is oxyhemoglobin and tissue uh, and while it's transparent in water, while thulium and uh, homium are primarily in water. And this effect means that with high energy, uh, with green light, it goes right through water with 100% transmission of power to the tissue to boil it away, while homium uh, utilizes water to blow it up and give you a thermal shockwave blasting to break up stones or tissue from it, as well as to thermally coagulate it with that front explosion. Today, lasers for prostate are primarily done in two modalities, either with enucleation prostatectomy or with transurethral vaporization of the tissue without removing any tissue. 
The Holmian procedure uh, is the first that we'll review. As we see, the wavelength is favors water, water as a primary chromophore with a pulsatile thermal mechanical me mechanism of action. The high temperature bubble explodes, giving a thermal mechanical vaporization, sort of like a high powered uh, uh, impactor uh, driller. And it's used for lithotripsy, hole up, lap, and neutral strictures, and it cuts very well. The meta-analysis for, uh, for, uh, for this uh, studies have been many. And since the 1990s, Dr. Gilling, Dr. Lingaman, and their, and their, and their, and their uh, many fellows have popularized the technique and done multiple studies uh, that basically confirm its efficacy with better safety parameters, well, despite taking longer to do and harder to do. While transient incontinence has been a durable finding, it is probably due to the completeness of the resection at the apex and tends to resolve over time. And there's been over a half a dozen trials of HOLA versus TERP uh, to show this. This is how the more recent TERP trials and what you can take home with you from these trials is that um, most complications are related to the manual surgical enucleation and use of morselator by the procedure. It still does have its leading rates, but it's much lower than TERP and open prostatectomy. Hole up summary, better equal efficacy compared to taper open prostatectomy, good durability, centers of excellence are still growing and uh, many more and are publishing data. There is a long learning and technical curve, but that's becoming less of an issue and you still need morselators. Thulium is the sister uh, uh, version of the, holium, of the holium. It is, difference is that it's higher power with a continuous wave and it does have bleeding rates similar to, uh, to, uh, to to homium, but that being said, it is uh, basically consistent with hold-up data. The, uh, <clears throat> the next procedure is the green light procedure. It is high power transmitted through water with no energy absorption, selectively absorbed by oxyhemoglobin, side fire, and basically the main endpoint is vaporization to achieve a turf-like cavity. Uh, what we see here is data that uh, was a multi-center paper that showed good efficacy initially with the 80-watt laser. And uh, having done this uh, in those days, uh, it, uh, many people have since followed for the past 15 years as it advanced through the 180 technology. There's been lots of PP versus TERP trials. Uh, and what we can see is that uh, there are similar efficacy to TERP and open prostate that can be achieved if one is persistent. Um, in the many meta-analysis of the various trial, there is similar efficacy. Uh, seen uh, between the two. Uh, so there's no real difference if you really are persistent. Uh, but the main advantages of doing a green light is that you have definitely improved blood loss. The catheterization time and length of stay is much short, shorter. Uh, however, because it's a vaporization technique, it is longer operative time with TURP. Uh, that being said, um, you get it because of the transfusion rate being low, it is used for anticoagulated patient, but it does have a, there is still a lower intervention rate with TURP. One of the things that I realized when we first saw its uh, advantage of 15 years ago because of oxyhemoglobin, the mean chromophore, is that uh, it could be a very good for anticoagulant patients. And in our initial paper about 10 years ago, uh, we performed this in anticoagulated patients because of its wavelength characteristics. And today, we still perform it in medically anticoagulant patients, even on warfarin. And this experience is not, uh, has been confirmed by many other uh, people uh, in the literature. Uh, in fact, in the Globals Registry, uh, it's a very commonly used procedure, and you can see that the transfusion rate is fairly low with the green light procedure. If, if because it's so hemostatic and we're using normal saline, 
you can actually do be persistent and take a long time to do these procedures. You can actually do them in large glands, although it takes a long time. And it's been reproducible in larger series, although it is not something that is recommended by the AUA, but it does take a long time to do. Uh, and that being said, um, uh, it's still valid for large glands if one is persistent, because at the end of the day, it's the surgeon who has to basically make that canal big enough to work. That being said, these are the common laser prostatectomy techniques available today. The most common is pure vaporization side to side uh, because it's fairly easy to do. Uh, enucleation with a nucleator has been proven by multi, many uh, multi-center randomized trial. However, there is still also the pure laser enucleation that is available with the green light, although, uh, and so uh, just to show you that it can be done. And I think that the future is that enucleation is whether whatever technology you use, debulking and, uh, and enucleating, whether you use a green light or a homium or a thulium or even a, uh, a vaporization electro, which have some, is, has been in the literature, it really gives you durable long-term efficacy if you can achieve it. The question is, is it safe to do? Can you achieve it safely? And is the bleeding controllable enough so that you can get away with it? So, you know, to me, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward thing. Although I must say, doing it with the standard PVP technique is a fairly straightforward and easy thing to do, and it can open it enough probably in a minute, and just as well as any minimally invasive therapy in a quick and easy fashion that is hemostatic. And uh, as you've shown here, my own enucleation technique has been around for a long time, so I would say that it's not uh, a, a unique thing. That being said, the new statement today, what I'd like to review and everybody's been probably waiting for is this issue of aquablation. It is a grade C because it really, this recommendation is really based on only uh, on the randomized registration trial by the FDA. Uh, basically, um, it is a, uh, it is a uh, robotic therapy. And uh, the key thing about the robotic therapy is that it's a computer ultrasound visual guidance robotic computerized planning that's meant to, to do the procedure and remove tissue by removing the variation of surgical skill to debulk the prostate because it's an automated process. Basically, you draw the picture on the ultrasound that you want to remove, and then you press the pedal, and away you go. That being said, um, you know uh, it is a new statement based on one, one uh, on the registration trial. It composes of a robotic handpiece console and planning unit, the transurethral section with a water jet, so it's athermal with transurethral monitoring, plus or minus uh, catheter traction. And it's really meant, uh, based on that paper, for glands between 30 and 80 glands, grams. Uh, Long-term efficacy, however, and is still uh, meant to be determined, as well as whether retreatment is also. That being said, uh, most of this data is based on this one registration trial of what they'll call the water study, uh, monitored the water study, and is really an aquavalation versus terp randomized trial in a two-to-one ratio. Uh, this is the target population of 45 to 80 with LUTs, uh, standard IPSS and, uh, and flow rate issues, and average size gland in a two-to-one randomization. Uh, the primary endpoints is whether safety using a Clavian Dindo grade uh, uh, assessment, and, and then efficacy was really taking a non-inferiority approach to TORP. This is the trial design in a two-to-one ratio of, terp, uh, of aquablation to TERP. Uh, and you can see the baseline characteristics are fairly similar at the start. And uh, these are the primary endpoint definitions to, uh, for you guys to look at. Uh, and what we can see in summary, uh, based on this randomized trial, 
is that uh, there is a, uh, a 12 um, 12 month efficacy follow up as per what we uh, published. Uh, there is similar efficacy with one patient transfused. And what we can see here is that primary efficacy at least at six months was not inferior to TRP. Uh, we now have two year data that shows symptom comparison to, uh, that's very similar to TORP, as well as good uh, outcomes, uh, uh, objective outcomes of QMAX and PVR similar to TORP. So they're very, they're very uh, similar. And when we do the sub-analysis, what we have found is that uh, in, it's better, or e better for larger prostates, and because it's robotic, it makes it easier. One of the key things about, uh, about aquablation is safety. And, uh, and compared to TERP, it seems to have a better clavian dindo grade. Uh, there is reduced re re uh, retrograde ejaculation, although probably less prostate is removed with aquablation. Uh, one of the key things is that, uh, and based on this, it seems to be superior to TERP, although I would say you're splitting the differences, especially with regards to bleeding. One of the key things that makes this actually safer is because it's really fast. When you take a standard TERP uh, for an 80, 60, 80 gram prostate, you're looking at 36 minutes. But with aquablation, while it's shorter at 27, the actual resection time is really five minutes to 10 minutes. Having done one uh, um, 120 gram prostates in, in, uh, in, uh, in six minutes, I can attest to that the resection part is very quick because it's quick, you, the bleeding, even though it can be fast, it's sh short-lived because you can put the catheter right away and obtain hemostasis. That being said, when we look at incontinence, incontinence is probably superior, is superior in the series, primarily because of the butterfly pattern that they utilize at the apex and, uh, and the athermal technique. PSA, however, is uh, less reduced in aquablation than TURP, probably reflective of the fact that it probably doesn't remove as much tissue as PURP or a decrease in volume. And, uh, and overall though, I think that uh, when you look at the, uh, the advantages of aquablation, it has two things. One thing, one thing that's uh, predominant is that this is a debulking procedure that was actually designed to help decrease the likelihood of, uh, of a particular sexual dysfunction, which is ejaculation, because it uses a butterfly pattern at the apex and because it uses a butterfly pattern to apex, you can also control how far it goes on a pre-planned uh, uh, pre-planning before you start the resection. Uh, and based on this, the uh, the sexual heart survey uh, it does help them with a good erectile sexual function, which I don't think should be any different than a TERP. But the main advantage is that ejaculatory function is improved with uh, with uh, aqua ablation because of this. Uh, butterfly pattern at the uh, pa preserving the paracollicular structure at the apex. However, it's pretty interesting. Uh, the rate of retrograde ejaculation is only 11% in uh, aquablation, and it was only about 30 plus percent in TERP, suggesting that even a TERP, if properly done, can get you this type of result. Overall, though, uh, in this one series, uh, it's superior in terms of safety and not inferior. Uh, it's superior in terms of safety, efficacy is not inferior. Uh, there is superior because of ejaculation, uh, and it, it can be done in larger prostates with, versus the TURP. That being said, I don't think that this ejaculation is, is, is you know, unique to aquablation. It's really about preserving the power collicular structure, and today we're seeing more and more papers coming out utilizing this, this technique in various transurethral procedures, including lasers and uh, transurethral resections. Overall, though, I would say that... Um,
what we can say about our AOA guidelines is that the guidelines provide a general map of treating the right size prostate with the appropriate technique based on the published literature and the consultation of our experts in the field. And I'm glad to be part of this group. And uh, our, our experience has only been uh, enhanced by this uh, review and these guidelines. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks. Uh, that was a, a tremendous uh, presentation, tremendous presentations on, on, on everyone, uh, for everyone rather. Uh, to tie things up a little bit, I, I was just going to wrap things up a little bit with a, a broad view of the future of the uh, the guidelines. Uh, the three summary points really are here. The medical therapy guidelines, as I indicated, will be coming out uh, next year. Uh, they will in some way, shape or form be integrated with the surgical guidelines. We, we haven't determined exactly what the presentation format will be just yet, uh, but they will be easily accessible and just as uh, succinct uh, and to the point uh, as the current surgical uh, guidelines. Uh, and then finally, our, uh, my hope at least is to continue the annual updates. Uh, I think it's something that's been very effective having the amendments coming out once a year, particularly for the minimally invasive uh, therapies uh, as the new evidence uh, comes out about them. The projected timeline, fall of 2020, as I indicated earlier, the final draft of the medical guidelines, 2021, we're gonna integrate the surgical and medical guidelines. Uh, and then the future, uh, the goal would be continuation of the amendments on a regular basis to provide the membership uh, and all the stakeholders involved here uh, with updated data uh, as it comes out. Uh, some likely future topics. Uh, I think there will likely be current device updates, uh, mostly in terms of the length of follow-up from the randomized clinical trials that were presented over the course of uh, this evening. Uh, there will likely be new devices. Uh, Dr. Reborn mentioned the urethral stents, uh, which he noted are probably a few years out yet from, from having data that would be incorporated into the guidelines, but they're just an example of some of the things that will likely be addressed uh, by the AUA group at some point. Uh, and finally, there will likely be continued uh, ongoing review of PAE. Uh, as Dr. Warborn uh, also mentioned, there were some uh, data that have already come out earlier this year that were not incorporated uh, in the prior review. Thank you very much. So I wanted to thank uh, all my fellow uh, speakers. Uh, even though I was on the guidelines panel, uh, I, I learned a lot tonight. I wanted to thank uh, everybody for their efforts. And most of all, I wanted to thank uh, you, the audience, because uh, these guidelines, in fact, uh, are products of our desire to kind of uh, service the healthcare professionals. Um, I'm gonna turn it back to our uh, panel, uh, to our organizers who will tell you how to claim CME credit. And we hope to see you live soon. <laughs> I think that's kind of the goal for all of us. So again, thank you uh, for your attention and your time and your consideration.